morning and welcome fans and friends and colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, whether you are across town or across the globe. And uh, thank you for joining us at this special time. Uh, It is 8 a.m. in the morning this Wednesday, uh, February 15th, uh, day after Valentine's Day. And uh, I am here uh, in the morning rather than in the evening because it is my great pleasure uh, to have with me today uh, the foremother Anne Baring, and uh, we are going to be talking about uh, a subject very close to my heart, uh, Mary Magdalene. That is our topic today. And, um, you know, in keeping with the theme of uh, folks who are uh, calling from across the pond, uh, like Anne is, uh, we're here at 8 a.m. because Anne is actually calling uh, from over in the U.K., I believe, and uh, uh, we're trying to have her on at a reasonable hour. Uh, That music that opened the show, uh, Maria, uh, by the band Be Optimistic, want to just uh, have a quick shout out to them thank you for uh, that snippet uh, uh, from Be Optimistic it's called Maria and it was in dedic- uh, dedication to Mary uh, to the uh, to the sacred feminine and all her many uh, facets and uh, I thought that would be the perfect uh, tribute to uh, Mary Magdalene uh, today because um Uh, We are going to be exposing a lot of information that maybe some of you know uh, and want to hear again. Uh, Maybe some of you will be hearing for the first time. Uh, And uh, it's just incredible stuff. You know, I think we are living in a time of transparency. Um, a, a lot of things are coming uh, to the forefront, and uh, uh, the depth that we are going to go into the legacy of Mary Magdalene today, uh, thanks to uh, foremother Anne Baring, uh, you know, for bringing it uh, to us today. Uh, I, I think it will probably surprise you because this is information new to me, uh, even though this is a subject that I have been interested in for many years and delved into it quite extensively. Um, the material we're going to share today, uh, I, I believe, goes in more depth than um, probably most of us have heard before. Uh, but first, uh, let me... Um, Again, uh, thank Anne for being with us this morning, uh, for calling in, as I said, you know, at this special time to be with us. Uh, Anne is a foremother uh, in the goddess community. All you have to do is uh, Google her name, Anne Baring. You will see the many books uh, that she authored or co-authored um, in the 90s. I know they're all on my shelves. Uh, many of her books has uh, laid the foundation for me, uh, you, you know, f- for understanding uh, goddess spirituality uh, and what we had uh, hidden from us uh, for so long. Uh, her most recent book out, I believe, uh, The Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul, uh, a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, I would 
highly recommend. And uh, Anne has uh, also, uh, in uh, my latest uh, anthology as well, uh, Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. And uh, I thank her for that, uh, for participating in in that anthology, which is in itself an action of partnership, uh, and partnership being something we we believe is a sacred feminine ideal that we want to birth more of in the world. So uh, with that said, uh, let me um, welcome uh, Anne to the show and invite her to lend her voice here. Um, Anne, uh, welcome to Voices of the Sacred Feminine this morning. Thank you, Karen. I'm right here. A little bit croaky, but here. <clears throat> okay. Okay. It seems okay. like every everyone's got that uh, stuff in their throat these days. So um, uh, take your time, and uh, if you need to take a break uh, for a, a sip of water or something, please don't uh, hesitate. And um, okay, so today we are going to be talking about uh, Mary Magdalene and Jesus, of course. And uh, a lot of what we're talking about is based on the book by Lawrence Gardner. Um, called uh, the Mag- Magdalene Legacy, and uh, and also the Grail Enigma, and I, I just want to read uh, a brief opening, and then we're going to jump into uh, the material that Anne sent me uh, about this subject. Uh, okay. Here goes. Uh, For many centuries, Mary Magdalene has been presented in literature and art as a sinner and a a penitent uh, whore. Having read The Magdalene Legacy and The Grail Enigma by the late Florence Gardner, I realize uh, that naming her sinner guilty of all vices, as Pope Gregory and uh, the Great did in A.D. 59, has been the most outrageous calumny columnae fixed on her. Uh, It was done in order to conceal the fact of her marriage to Jesus and her role as the Apostle of Apostles. The Benedictine and Dominican orders of monks both knew the true story and kept it alive in their records. The Vatican has not disclosed the documents it has in its archives which bear witness to her marriage and the children she had with Jesus. The 13th century uh, Albigensian crusade initiated by Pope Innocent uh, III was designed to wipe out all vestiges of the Church of the Holy Spirit, whose presiding image was divine wisdom or Sophia, and which uh, had kept alive the fact of Mary's marriage to Jesus and her work as an apostle in Provence, which is in France. Ah, um, Wow, uh, Lawrence. Uh, Lawrence is an incredible author, and uh, uh, while others, I think, have dipped their toe in the water uh, about uh, Mary Magdalene, um, I think Lawrence really uh, goes the the extra mile and and really just lays it all out there. Don't you agree, Anne? Yeah, I would say he goes the extra 10 miles, I think, more thoroughly than anybody else I've read because he looks at all the documentation from the Hebrew point of view as well as the Greek and the Latin and as well as in what's in the Catholic Church. Okay, yeah. So he's very um, comprehensive. Yeah, I mean- 
Yeah, I mean, he uh, he draws together all sorts of sources uh, because, I mean, this is really a, a, a jigsaw puzzle, if you will, uh, yeah. because mm-hmm. it's it, it seems like the church uh, really just uh, moved uh, hell and high water to, um, you know, to cover up this information. Absolutely. No question about it. <laughs> So, um, well, let's let's just kind of start there for for a moment before we actually get into the the facts. Um, what what was their motivation uh, to the best of anyone's knowledge, and why why would they wanted to have covered up the truth about Jesus and Mary Magdalene, in your opinion, or Lawrence's opinion, if he if he uh, offered uh, his opinion? Well, his opinion was that they wanted to cover up the fact that there was a bloodline coming from Jesus and Mary Magdalene and also from James, the brother of Jesus. And they wanted to absolutely wipe out all evidence of this. And so did the Roman uh, emperors, um, Constantine, Constantine and Theodosius. All this happened in the 4th century. Up until the 4th century, we had the um, Nazarene teaching of Jesus and Mary Magdalene and their followers. And we had the early Gnostics, uh, which were a follow-up of that, if you like. But then everything, everything changed in the 4th century, and it was then that uh, the church changed Jesus into the Son of God, gave him an immaculate conception through Mary, and eradicated all notice of the existence of his brothers and sisters. Um, so that was really an extraordinary thing to do, but one can see it from the point of view of the power of the church. It gave them enormous power to create this wonderful myth, extraordinary myth, which has sustained the church ever since, and to really um, cover up the original teaching of Jesus, which was about relationship and love and um, really service, above all service. So right. And the church became a, a, a powerhouse rather than a house of service, if you like. So it, it so it really sort of took everything in a different direction, um, and and would we would it be safe to say that um, it, it would have uh, diminished their power? I mean, could they not have uh, created um, you know this powerful force with just a different message? I don't think they could at that time. I think it was probably very very difficult to have done that. Um, and to grow the church in the way that it grew when it was an institution under the Roman Empire, because it was that. It was Constantine's um, entry into this whole scene. Constantine was actually one of the descendants, funnily enough, in the bloodline. Uh, But I can't go into that because there isn't time. But when Constantine came into it and took the church under his wing and said that it would be the church of the Holy Roman Empire, I mean, not the Holy Roman, but the Roman Empire, that changed everything because it gave an enormous um, organizational power to Christianity, which it didn't have before. So one can see why it was such a temptation to go into this power, um, really um, part, the path of power rather than the path of love. Right. Well, and, and um, you know, for us looking back, I mean, there's, there's been so much time that's gone by uh, since Jesus' uh, life, his death, 
and, and but we have to remember that you know when we look back, I mean, so many Christians probably don't even know about this prehistory. Uh, you know, they only know what the church has taught, and not anything that really came before, because I would imagine it's considered heretical or uh, you know maybe even uh, uh, blasphemous or something. Yeah. Uh, but but what we're what we're saying is that this distortion of Christianity really uh this this man made distortion of Christianity that starts i guess with Constantine um that that was sort of the turning point for Christianity, and for what hundreds of years before Constantine, there was a whole different uh flavor uh, uh if you will of of christianity is is that not correct? Yes, it was when Christianity established the um the church in Rome that the trouble started and also they took St. Paul as their guide rather than Jesus. It's as if St. Paul really um, got in the way of the teaching of Jesus and in fact was accused of doing that by Jesus' brother James. So anyway, what happened that um, the church was established in Rome and the Nazarene sects which were established in um, Jerusalem and and moved uh, westwards and eastwards from Palestine, they gradually were swallowed up, if you like, although they did survive in the Gnostics, many, many groups of Gnostics with their different Gospels. But there was also, at this time, in the second century, there was tremendous persecution. Thousands of Christians were um, killed or sent to the Roman arenas or whatever. So it was a time of great fear, and that probably made the, the original groups go underground and keep themselves to themselves. And meanwhile, the church in Rome was being established and beginning to to grow. And by the time Constantine came on the scene, it was ready to be changed into a huge organization. So it wasn't anyone's particular fault. It, it sort of happened because of the yeah. circumstances and because several of the Roman emperors uh, detested the Christians and wanted to wipe them out. Um, that was in both in um, Rome and also in France. Right. So a lot was going well, on. It, it, I, so, I think so I, really, I, I, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say there were 364 years between the crucifixion of Jesus and the final selection of canonical texts, which turned into the Gospels we know. So there was a huge amount of time, sort of 400 years nearly, uh, when all this was going on, a lot was changing, the Gnostics were being persecuted, the Christian church was being established, uh, very powerful bishops, were getting their hand in things, and these big councils were being held, one of them at Nicaea in 325, and the other one in um, 351, I think, um, which was the one that made Mary, um, the the Immaculate uh, Conception of Mary, and the Nicene Creed was established. So all this was going on in a huge kind of um, turmoil of different elements all mixed in together, if you can get the picture. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because if you're, uh, if if you really do want to study uh, early Christianity, I mean, it was, uh, it wasn't a cohesive um, uh, teaching, really. I don't think. I mean, you had all sorts of flavors of Christianity. I think in those early days. I mean, I remember reading even there was a Christianity mixed with goddess spirituality. I mean, I think there was a group called the Montanists who actually worshipped, uh, I think, Jesus and Cabelli. 
Um, so, I mean, there was uh, a lot of, um, uh, I, you know, I want to keep calling it flavors. I mean, much like the church today. I mean, look at all the different yeah. uh, all the varieties different of yeah. Yeah, all the different sects and uh, of Christianity that we have. Um, it, it, I mean, if that sort of helps understand that everyone was not walking in lockstep uh, and believed mm. the same thing. I mean, much like goddess spirituality, you know, you go to someone who's a goddess advocate, and you know, you talk to ten different goddess advocates, and they'll sort of tell you, <laughs> you know, ten different ways of thinking about goddess or what that's goddess right. is all well, that's, about. That's what that's what drove the the. Um early bishops of the church mad because there were so many, uh, maybe 30 or 40 different groups of Gnostics and they just couldn't cope with them all, you know, they said, oh for goodness sake, let's get rid of the lot and we'll just have four and settle it, and that's what they did but also another very important thing, in the 4th century the gender of the Holy Spirit changed from being feminine to being masculine and that was a huge change because we got rid of the idea of having the divine mother and father and we just then had the the trinity the male trinity so the feminine aspect was completely deleted and at the same time the church that was now established in rome wiped out all evidence of the fact that women had taught and preached and healed in the early church and they forbade women to do that after the third century so it was a huge change, but the, the feminine element was absolutely wiped out of the Christian church. That was the result, whether it was wiped out of the Trinity or wiped out of the um, way um, men regarded women and didn't allow them to preach or teach or, or heal or do anything at all except sit and listen to what the men were saying. So that right. was a huge change. And, you because know, for anyone Gnostic, that... Th- Sorry, can I just say the early Nazarenes, sure. it's very important to say this, following the teaching of Jesus, um, they celebrated God as both mother and father. They held that men and women were equal and that both could hold the position of teacher, healer, priest, and deacon. The Jewish establishment and the Catholic Church forbade these roles for women. Men performed the rites and women listened in silence. So that was a huge change. And they did not believe, the Nazarenes did not believe in the virgin birth of Jesus or that Jesus was the Son of God or that he had been resurrected from the dead in a physical body because they knew he'd survived the crucifixion because he was teaching after it and conceived two sons after it with Mary Magdalene. So that really brings us to the fact of the marriage of Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Right. Right, uh, and you know, for anyone that that wonders, okay, this is there's uh, why are these people talking about this? This is ancient history, uh, you know that it, it has no bearing on life today. Why do we care? Um, we care because these ancient stories shape our culture even today. Uh, you know, you just look out uh, to what's happening in the world and you see how women still continue to be marginalized in mm-hmm. varying degrees all across the globe. And it's, uh, you know, because of these ancient stories, uh, our mythology shapes our culture. And if we had continued along the lines of, uh, of Jesus' true church, uh, you know, where they, uh, you know, the Nazarenes, uh, where they celebrated God as uh, mother and father, where women were equal, then, uh, you know, if that was at the center of our world rather than patriarchy, then the world would uh, look like a much different place today, wouldn't it, Anne? 
It would certainly, and also we would have had a, the idea of marriage right at the root, the marriage of man and woman right at the root of our religion, our Christian religion, instead of a celibate son of God, really, who is way out of, although he incarnated uh, supposedly as a man, um, we lost the idea of the relationship between man and woman and the sacred relationship and also the presence of children. So the family was just disappeared. The right, fact that right. Jesus' children disappeared and the fact that he had a marriage and it was a, a dynastic, important marriage completely vanished. And, you know, and, and as a side, well, you know, as a, a, a parallel to that, uh, the whole idea of um, uh, probably sacredness of the body, sacred sexuality, you know, in patriarchal religion, you know, the body is evil and sex is taboo uh, rather than natural and, and holy and, uh, you know, just, a, uh, you know, pleasure is a gift. Uh, you know, we start going down this roll, this road where we turn what's natural on its head. Well, absolutely, and I think the whole problem with sexuality today and pornography really stems from that because there has been no sacred uh, concept of sexuality. Sexuality has been regarded as something dangerous, even evil, and also with St. Augustine it was regarded as the way in which original, original sin was transmitted through the sexual act. So it was St. Augustine who changed the church hugely in the 4th century with this terrible idea of original sin, which originated with the um, Old Testament. But even so, it doesn't come into Jesus' teaching at all. It's not there, although yeah. he mentions sin. But he de never mentions the fact that we're contaminated with original sin. And that was the thing that uh, contaminated sexuality, and we're suffering from it today with the idea that we can sleep with anyone with like it doesn't matter and that uh, sex is dirty, that um, God knows what, really. All the mess right. that sexuality is in today, which we take as freedom, is actually not freedom at all. It's still being bound to a complex which has gone on for 1,700 years. Yeah. Well, um, you know, when you think about it, we can lay an awful lot of society's ills uh, at the doorstep of uh, the Abrahamic religions, can't we, when we look at this big picture? Yes, we can, because of the total absence of the feminine principle, that's the major problem. And also the, the uh, neglect of the body or contempt for the body. I mean, look at all the um, people being killed now in the Middle East. There's no respect for the body as the vehicle of the soul at all, or the vehicle of the spirit. And we're equally guilty of that because Christianity has a terrible history of, of killing in the name of God. Yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, let's get into the details here. Uh, now that we've kind of, uh, you know, uh, gave an overview and why this is uh, so important. Um, so, all right, we know, um, all right, Mary Magdalene traveled and she taught with Jesus. She anointed him. She married him. She bore him three children. Uh, she was a, a loyal companion to his mother and sister. She was there at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother and sisters. She went to attend Jesus' body in the sepulcher and was the first of the apostles to speak with him in the sepulcher garden and you say she was documented as the consort and there's a word that is used to yeah. prove that uh, K-O-I-N-O-N-O-S um, uh, koinos koinona. um 
and that's from the Gospel of uh, Philip. Do you want to speak to that a little bit, Anne? Yes, because that word was translated in the Nag Hammadi text as companion. Companion is very different from consort, and this is a, a huge mistake, really. And this is something that Lawrence Gardner has picked up because he translates that word, koinoinos, as consort. And I just would want you to, if I can find it, read the um, actual Gospel of Philip. Yeah, well, while you're looking for that, um, you, you, in materials you sent me, you said uh, she was recognized as the apostle of apostles, the woman who Jesus kissed and called his blessed one. She was described as, quote, the woman who knew the all and the woman whom Jesus loved. That's absolutely right. Well, I found the place here, and I've, I've said the Greek word koinonos has the explicit meaning of consort and refers to a wedded sexual partner. It would have also signified a recognized dynastic wife. The translation of this word as the companion of Jesus in the Gospel of Philip in the Nag Hammadi Library is therefore incorrect. And just to go through the details, the dialogue of the Savior in the Nag Hammadi Library portrays Mary Magdalene as the apostle who excels all the others and as the woman who knew the all. That's the dialogue of the Savior. And then the Gospel of Philip says, there were three who always walked with the Lord. His sister and his mother and his consort were each a Mary. And then again, and the consort of the Savior is Mary Magdalene. Christ loved her more than the disciples and used to kiss her often on the mouth. The rest of the disciples were offended by it and expressed disapproval. They said to him, Why do you love her more than all of us? And the Savior answered and said to them, Why do I not love you like her? Great is the mystery of marriage, for without it the world would not have existed. Now the existence of the world depends on man, and the existence of man on marriage. Now would he have said that unless he was married? I don't think he would have. True, and also that speaks to what you said a moment ago about the importance of the relationship, the importance of family, and not just casual hookups either, mm. you know, mm. uh, or, or, you know, sexual liberation uh, in the sense that, you know, we can just, that sex is meaningless and we can have sex with anybody. But I think this sort of puts um, sexuality and, and relationship in a, in a totally different, more sacred context, doesn't it? Yes, I think it does, absolutely. And also, in another manuscript called the Pistis Sophia, um, Mary's name is mentioned 150 times, and Peter's, who's always grumbling on about Mary getting attention, he's only mentioned 14 times. And Jesus addresses Mary as, Thou pure in light. And Mary says at one point, I'm afraid of Peter, for he threatens me and he hates our race. Peter was an undeveloped man, I'm afraid, even though he was a disciple and an apostle. So uh, when she said that, what do you think she meant? He uh, he hates our race. Did well, he, he, doesn't uh, like women. She... he doesn't like women, period. Or he okay. thinks women should well, I didn't stay in know... their place. Okay. Uh, well, I didn't know if you meant her gender or if they, because if, you said she was a Syrian, and we're going to get into that, that uh, oh, no, she was a Syrian. That. It wouldn't have been that. It would have been just okay. like, why do we have these these wretched women that get, always getting in the way? It would have been that sort of feeling. And it makes you wonder how he could have been chosen as an apostle, too, doesn't it? 
Um, well, apparently he was very practical. He was very practical, and Jesus probably relied on, on him for organizing things quite a lot. But he and Andrew were definitely two of the apostles who were not on the same level as, say, Philip and, and the other ones. And he says in, another, so in, the, gospel of, sorry, in the Gospel of Thomas, um, Peter says, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. And Jesus yeah. rebukes him then. So, so would that uh, suggest you think, Anne, that um, Peter and Andrew were not uh, Essenes or Nazarenes, since the, it was the Essenes and the Nazarenes that uh, saw women as equal? I would have thought so. They may have been um, drawn from a different section of the community, but I, I wouldn't like to be sure of that. You'd have to read the books by Lawrence Gardner to be sure about that, because I can't remember. Okay. But I do. I think okay. we ought to move on to the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which is very, very important, because there okay. again, All right. um, there again, Peter's opposition to Mary comes in, because it, it, this is so fascinating. Because the Gospel of Mary relates to the period immediately after Jesus's um, resuscitation, when the apostles were distressed and weeping and didn't realize that he'd been restored to life. But Mary Magdalene did know because she'd spoken with Jesus in the sepulchre garden. And so she was able to tell the um, others to stop weeping and to take courage because she said, his grace will be with you and will protect you. Then Peter asked her to tell them all she could remember of what Jesus had said to her alone in the garden, everything you know and we do not. And then Mary tells them what Jesus said to her. And then Andrew began to speak and said to his brothers, Tell me, what do you think of these things that she has been telling us? As for me, I do not believe that the teacher would speak like this. These ideas are too different from those we have known. And Peter added, how is it possible that the teacher talked in this manner with a woman about secrets of which we ourselves are ignorant? Must we change our customs and listen to this woman? Did he really choose her and prefer her to us? Then Mary wept and said to Peter, my brother Peter, what do you think? Do you think I thought this up myself in my heart, or that I am lying about the Saviour? And Levi answered and said to Peter, Peter, you've always been hot-tempered. Now I see you arguing with the woman as if you were enemies. But if the Saviour made her worthy, who are you indeed to reject her? Surely the Saviour knows her well enough, and that is why he loved her more than us. Rather, let us be ashamed and put on the perfect man, and separate as he commanded us and preach the gospel, not laying any down any other rule of law beside what the Saviour said. So there you have it. You have the tension between Mary and the jealousy, really, on the part of Peter and Andrew, who, who, who say, for goodness sake, why has she been preferred over us? Just plain jealousy, right. really. <laughs> Quite well, funny. Well, and it... It, well, and it also speaks to, um, you know, you, uh, it, and again, you alluded to it already, that, uh, you know, maybe they just were not advanced enough to be able to understand the concepts that he spoke to her about. You know, they, they just so. were not as evolved. Um, yeah, I, and, I so uh, so let me ask you about this. Uh you know it goes sort of directly to uh the the what you just read about after Jesus. Jesus is taken down off the cross. Um uh and, and you say in the book uh, uh uh Lawrence talks about the fact that um 
you know, when someone is crucified, what then they're usually hanged, but but they didn't do that with Jesus in this case. Instead of taking him off the cross and hanging him, they gave him uh, they gave the family permission to uh, to bury him alive or something. Was that what I read? Yes, apparently they did that. Um, and it was his and, brother James who took him down, not his father, but his his brother, who also had the title of Joseph of Arimathea. And they, they knew Pontius Pilate quite well. <coughs> they weren't a poor family from Galilee at all. They were a very rich and a successful um, dynastic family in Jerusalem, as well as being um, connected to Qumran. So um, this is what uh, Gardner says, uh, that Jesus was given a drug on a sponge to make him appear dead or unconscious and was taken down after five or six hours by James and Nicodemus. James had asked Pilate's permission to bury Jesus in the family sepulchre, which was granted. That would have been burial alive. He was taken to the family sepulchre, and his wounds were secretly attended by Essene healers, either in the sepulchre or close by. And the next day was the Sabbath, so nobody went to the sepulchre, so they could do this, so to speak, in secret and in uh, privacy. And then, of course, there's a scene in in the garden with Mary. Um, so, and, but, so the, but the apostles, the other apostles, didn't know that he had been resuscitated. It was only when Mary saw him in the garden that she realized what had happened. And she had no idea that this was happening either until she actually saw Jesus. Okay, so so when you say resuscitated, we're not trying to suggest here that he was dead and brought back to life. He, no, he not at didn't all. die on the yeah. So he didn't die on the cross. He was just no. he, you know his wounds were tended and he uh, just recovered basically uh, from his, that ordeal. And uh, so so when this whole conversation is happening with. Uh, uh, with the apostles, they don't yet know that he's still alive. No, so, they don't, so that exactly. would, hmm. so that would suggest then, Anne. And now this is this is what I what I find incredible. And and I don't. And when I say incredible, I don't mean I disbelieve it. But that would mean um, because you talk here that um, they went on to have three children, uh, Mary and Jesus, and that uh, it wasn't till eleven years after the crucifixion that they go to France. So that yeah. would mean Jesus would have been walking around, uh, it, you know, free unless he was in hiding for over a decade before I, they go to uh, to southern France and escape what was happening, um, uh, you know, uh, in Jerusalem. I know. I think that what happened was Jesus probably was smuggled out of the country into um, um, what, what Turkey was called then, I can't remember what it was called, but was it um, Galatea or somewhere like that, or Thyatira apparently, another town in Turkey. And it's possible that he disappeared for a few years, but then he came back because there was the scene in the garden with the Pistis Sophia um, where they were talking together, Jesus and Mary Magdalene and Peter and other other, um, disciples and apostles. So there's a lot that we don't know, but um, Lawrence Gardner has ferreted out this information and, and uh, with great care and um, enormous scholarship. And I trust him on this, but I do agree that the 10 years between the crucifixion and the AD 44 when Mary went to France um, are a bit of a mystery. 
But he was yeah. there. He, he, yeah. met, he met with the apostles after the crucifixion, you remember, on the road to Emmaus and by the Sea of Galilee. So, And they were astonished, and they would have probably seen him as resurrected from the dead because they didn't know he'd been taken down from the cross. Right, right. Or or we have the you know, have it uh told to us like that because they wanted to make it look like it's mystical rather than yeah. they stumbled onto him, uh yeah, in the exactly. flesh. They, so Well they wanted to create the myth of the Son of God uh, who was miraculously right. resurrected from the dead. Right, right, right. Um, okay, so um, so another thing that I think is important and really interesting, and this was totally new uh, to me, and I think will be uh, to the listeners, that there is there's three stages to the. Well, okay. Well, wait. Before we go there, let's let's address uh, something that you just sort of touched on that maybe deserves a little bit more conversation. Uh, you said Jesus was not the son of a poor carpenter. Um, that he was actually the head of the Davidic line. Um, I I want to talk a little bit about that and also who Mary Magdalene really was and and if we know who Jesus' mother really was because they were not these, you know, these poor, humble people that we're led to believe. No, they weren't. Um, Both of them. I I can't speak more about uh, Mary, his mother, because I haven't really researched that so much, but certainly... Joseph of Arimathea uh, was not a poor carpenter. He was a rich merchant who was uh, traveling in copper and tin, and he traveled all over the Mediterranean, including to England, to, to, um, to Cornwall and Somerset in England, trading in, in tin and copper, and he was very well off and well established. But quite apart from that, he was the head of the Davidic line as a direct descendant of King David. That was the most important thing. And Jesus, as his oldest son, uh, was also the inheritor of, of that um, sort of honorary position, if you like. And Mary but now was... It, sorry, Mary but, was but, Syrian. But, okay. Uh, so uh, would... Uh, so was she was she uh, Semitic? I mean, was she Jewish, or uh, was it more of sort of a Canaanite pagan background? Or do we no, know? No, no, no. I think she was definitely Jew- Jewish. Her mother, um, I can't find the page. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you have something here about she was from the uh, Hesmodian Maccabees. That's right, the Hesmodian. Uh, well, I don't know what they are exactly, but that was what. Um, the mother was from, and I think that they were both Jewish, the father and the mother, although they were um, born in Syria, or they came from Syria. Okay. And now when we talk about Joseph of Arimathea, uh, that again, that was a title, but a title. who we're really talking about is James uh, the Just, who was Jesus' brother. So yeah. when we hear Joseph of Arimathea, it that is... Uh, Jesus's brother's title, uh, and so that's uh, that's actually the title of James. So it's an honorary, there is honorary a, title. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So um, all right. So we've sort of got their background there. Neither of them are 
you know, these these poor folks. You say uh, Mary Magdalene was of Syrian descent. Uh, her family name uh, was Mary of Bethany after the village where her family home was. Uh, she was a Syrian priestess in her own right by the time she married Jesus. And this was a dynastic uh, uh, marriage contract of two important family lines. That's right. Okay. Um, now, and that's what was why, really that's why she could anoint him, because she had the, the position as a priestess to do this anointing, which went back to the Sumerian marriage, sacred marriage ritual, a very ancient ritual. Well, and that's what I wanted to talk about a little bit, uh, because I found that really interesting, and I think my listeners would too, uh, the, the different four stages of the uh, betrothal and marriage ceremony. Um, do you remember that, um, Anne, or do yes, you want I've, me to... Yes, I've got them written down here in front of me. The first stage was the betrothal ceremony in June, the month of June, and there was a feast of celebration. And this was the betrothal ceremony recorded at the marriage of Cana, it took place in June A.D. 30. Then the second stage was three months after that. That was in September A.D. 30. And this was the occasion when Mary anointed Jesus' feet and wept because she would be parted from him for three months because they didn't live together at that point, even though this was a first marriage ceremony. In the third stage, sexual relations could only take place in December, that's three months after September, in order specifically that a child conceived in the month of, of December would be born the September following, which was the month of atonement. So it was a very important month, and the, the Davidic line had to give birth to their children in this sort of arrangement. They had to conceive in December and give birth the following September. Now, if the bride didn't conceive or miscarried, sexual relations were, relations were deferred until the following December. In other words, the, the final marriage, the fourth stage, couldn't occur until she was definitely pregnant and proof that she hadn't miscarried or that, you know, that she was okay, that she was carrying the child. So the fourth stage was a second marriage ceremony in the month of March. And this was the, the, final, um, the final stage. I've got to page, find page four now, which I've lost. And you said that uh, in, in the case of Mary and Jesus, that that fourth stage, uh, the final stage, um, you know, while she, uh, uh, so it's the second marriage ceremony, she's three months pregnant, and that happened a week before the crucifixion. Yes, she was three months pregnant, before, no, she was three months pregnant at the time of the crucifixion, which took place in March. Okay. Uh, well, that's 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 incredible. I think new it is really information. Incredible. And she hadn't conceived in the first two years that that they were together, so to all that they had sexual relations in December. It was only in the third December that she conceived. So there were three years between the second marriage and the final marriage. Quite complicated. But this this only this wasn't the Jewish marriage customs as a whole. This was only for dynastic marriages that were to do okay. with the line of David. Okay. And, uh, all right, so then they, she does, she gives birth to a daughter. Uh, it, it's the first child, right? And uh, the, the daughter's child, yeah. name is, Tam is, is Tamar. Tamar now, does, uh, does that child go on to any fame that we know of? Well, she apparently married St. Paul. She must have had a dreadful life with him. 
<laughs> but see, that's what that says in in uh, Lawrence Gardner, in eighty. Um, yes, I don't know quite what date. I can't remember. I haven't got it written down. But Poor presumably woman. when she um, was about sixteen. Yeah. Um, but, okay. And we, I just want to talk about the anointing, the second anointing, because that was happened at the fourth stage of the marriage when the true marriage took place. And she okay. anointed Jesus' head with spikenard, which is a very costly and fragrant essence or oil, which came from a root found high in the Himalayas. Can you imagine bringing it all the way from Himalayas to Jerusalem? Yeah. So the anointing was the express privilege of a messianic bride and performed only at the time of the first or second marriage. And only as the wife of Jesus and the priestess in her own right could Mary Magdalene have anointed Jesus' feet and head with the sacred oil. This was a Syrian ritual that originated in the Sumerian sacred marriage of Inanna and Damuzi and was enshrined in the Song of Songs. So Mary was associated with the bride in the Song of Songs ritually associated with her. And with this second anointing of his head, Jesus could hold the title of Messiah. He isn't, he isn't called Messiah before that anointing. I find all that fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is in- incredibly fascinating, especially because, you know, it feels like this is hearkening back to, uh, you know, more pagan goddess-oriented times mm-hmm. um, than, you know, uh, you know, yes, would, that, uh, yeah. That would have been the ancient ritual performed by the priestess in Samaria, in, in Sumer, sorry, yeah. when she was married uh, to the priest who held the position of Damuzi, her consort. Yeah. So a very ancient okay. ceremony. Okay. And so, um, all right, so we know, well, uh, according to Lawrence, we know Mary gave birth to a daughter in A.D. 33, uh, so that would have been, uh, you know, six months after the crucifixion. Uh, The daughter goes on to, unfortunately, marry St. Paul. um, (laughs) And and. And then she uh, then she gives birth to a son in A.D. 37, four years later, and they name this son uh, Jesus, Jesus after right. the, the father Jesus. Yes, and then right. in A- A.D. A.D. 43, Mary conceives for the third time and gives birth to the second son. Uh, but by now she's in France, and they're calling the the third child, the second son, uh, Josephus. And um, Lawrence says he was educated at an Essene University in Marseille. Um, You know, this all makes you wonder about, um, you know, like the Holy Blood, Holy Grail book, who talks about, you know, if there was really a a Davidic bloodline of Jesus that goes on to to today. Um, Did Lawrence think there was? Yes, he did. He didn't really take it up to today, but he took it up how far into the Middle Ages. Um, yeah, definitely. He, he took it up to the um, Merovingian kings and also to, in English, which I didn't realize at all, he took it to some English royal families of which Constantine was descended, the, the Emperor Constantine. It's very complex because there are two lines, one coming from Jesus and Mary Magdalene and the other from James the Just, the brother of Jesus. Who actually right. married? Who married a daughter of a druid in Somerset? He married a, of a druid in Glastonbury in England. So he ha- there was mixed um, Jewish and English blood there. 
It's all very right. fascinating. Right. <laughs> I don't know how he traced it, it all, but he's, he's got all the lines in the books. He shows the descendants um, in right. detail. And uh, in all of this information, um, I, I mean, it comes from an assortment of sources, little fragments here and there, uh, that the church was not able to uh, uh, find it all and hide it all, basically. Well, they did their best to hide it. They even actually killed some of the descendants as, as they um, who were able. They were able to kill. They got rid of them, and. So it's a very nasty story of suppression and oppression going right the way through. And it was only the Dominicans and the Benedictines who kept the old stories alive. He goes into these. I haven't got them written down here, but there were quite a few in the early centuries. There were quite a few records of Mary Magdalene, of her life, and those were recorded by the monks and kept alive by the monks. So, um, so the Nazarenes, um, or, or which is a sect of the Essenes, uh, which Jesus is part of, um, their descendants would be the Gnostics. So, the Gnostics of today, would you say, are the people that are closest, uh, closely following the real, t- maybe teachings of Jesus? I don't know because I don't know enough about the modern Gnostics, but I do know that in the 12th and 13th century, the Cathars of the uh, southwest of France, they were the true inheritors of the Nazarenes. They really did follow that teaching. And they were, uh, they were all massacred, practically, um, by at the orders of the Pope and the French king. There was something called the Albigensian Crusade. And they were literally wiped out and murdered and tortured and burnt at the stake and, as much as possible, el- eliminated. And that's really the last. Their church was called the Church of the Holy Spirit, and it was the presiding image of that was Sophia. There you have the feminine coming in again, and and because of that, I think it, it had to be eradicated by the Catholic Church. And so, it's a terrible, I, and terrible I think, story, and I I know it very well. It's on my website for anyone who wants to read it. Okay. Um, now there, now there's also a Templar connection in here too. I mean, I yes. remember the Templars; um, they were supposed to be the holders of a secret uh, that they were protecting, and they were obliterated as well uh, after were for the time. Same even. Yeah. For so the they same were actually. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, well, they, they well it's the because they're of the bloodline. And and that was too dangerous. So that was uh, well. Aside from the fact that I think a lot of the royalty owed them so much money, so it was in the interest of I don't know which king it was at the time, but I remember reading something about uh, one of the motivations to get rid of the Templars too was uh, that the king wouldn't have to pay back his debts. But it was probably, so it was probably. Yeah. Probably, uh, you know, uh, uh, what do you call it? The ch- church and king uh, coming together against the Templars uh, to rid themselves of this, um, you know, this problem. You know, their the yeah. debt and the knowledge that the Templars held. Absolutely. So they wiped out both the Cathars and the Templars by the fourteen, uh, yeah, fourteen hundred. They wiped out both of them. 
So this uh, did uh, Lawrence get into the the Montségur mystery at all uh, in southern France? You know the priest who uh, you know that's so so much a part of the Mary Magdalene mystery. Uh, you know the the priest in southern France yeah. who supposedly came upon these documents and then uh, it, it, did he did he elaborate on that at all? It, no, he doesn't elaborate on that at all. No, I think that was beyond the scope really of his uh, work. And also it came pretty well when he was writing these books because it wasn't all that long ago. Michael Bajant was a friend of mine who wrote Holy Blood, Holy Grail long in the 80s. And then that was taken up by Dan Brown in 2003 when he wrote The Da Vinci Code. Um, okay. So you, you had these two books which had a huge sale all over the world, really. People were fascinated by the story. But Gardner is the only person who really did the um, actually scholarly work to, to bring this out. Okay. Um, okay, so let's just talk a little bit more about uh, to sort of the tail end of Jesus and Mary's relationship. So we know they've had three children. Uh, Mary goes to France with um, a, a, a large, well, a large part of their family, uh, I'm trying to read where you wrote it, uh, where yes, you sent it took, to me. But sh- he took but, Lazarus, yeah, go ahead. Um, Lazarus and the Apostle Philip stayed with, with her, and also Jesus' sister, Salome, was married to Lazarus. So she went too, and there were other sisters of Jesus who were also with them. And I'm sure that she took a lot of texts with her relating to the teachings that she and Jesus had shared with the group of Nazarene disciples. But now so anyway, they, they all arrived they, at Marseille in, in Provence. But now her and Jesus don't live their life happily ever after. They part company, it seems they like. They part company because she was destined to take the teaching to France as an apostle, and he took it to Turkey and, some people say, to India and Kashmir. He went in a different direction. Together with the apostle Thomas, who wrote the Gospel of Thomas, he went to India and... Um, died there at the age of 87. He was murdered, unfortunately, there, down in the south of India. So they, they traveled widely, these people. It's incredible in that time to have traveled so widely in those circumstances. And nobody really knows what happens to Jesus after AD 44, although some people are saying that he did go to India and Kashmir. But that's beyond the scope of Lawrence Gardner. He doesn't go into that. So, so what you, so I think what you're saying, um, and Anne, correct me if I'm confused. You have you have Mary in France um, preaching one message. You have Jesus and maybe Turkey and India preaching another. While simultaneously, you have Peter doing uh, doing his thing. Well, Peter didn't the, last long because he was killed by one the emperor. I can't remember which one, but he was killed quite early on. But the church took off after that with the, under the influence of St. Paul. That it, became, it moved to the um, Greek world, away from the Hebrew world, to the Greek world with a focus in Rome. And it sort of grew there, so to speak, but had nothing to do with the original Nazarene teaching of Jesus. And Mary okay. and Jesus were certainly taking the same teaching to France and to, to uh, Turkey and India. Okay. And Jesus, he um, wouldn't have deviated. 
And you said that, um, okay, so many of the male followers of Jesus refused to accept Mary Magdalene as their leader. Mary, the rightful successor to Jesus, establishes the Order of the Blue Rose. Yes, I was um, fascinated to discover that. And it's do we know much the, about that? Well, it's on the Essene website, I think. Um, a friend of mine found it, and somebody mentioned it, one of the talks that I was giving um, and this became the symbol of her teaching and also the symbol of Sophia, the wisdom tradition. Okay. Um, and you, let's see, so she established the order in Palestine shortly after the crucifixion. And so then she goes on and she continues uh, to teach uh, the order of the Blue Rose uh, in France. Um, okay, and then, um, so you say that, uh, then we go on to the Gospel of John was probably written by Mary and Lazarus, so not, uh, so the Gospel of John wasn't really written by John. Uh, no, John is a, a kind of pseudonym, it's nothing to do with an apostle. This again is Lawrence Gardner, because he says, if I can find the page, he said there are three things that occur in that Gospel that don't occur in any of the other ones and that nobody could have known about those. I've just got to find the right page. Oh, I, I have it here. You say, uh, the wedding <laughs> feast at Cana, um, the raising of Lazarus after his four days' death. That's right. Uh, and then the meeting of Jesus and Mary in the sepulcher. Yeah, those are the three things that are only mentioned in the Gospel of John. And he says that nobody could have witnessed Jesus and Mary talking in the sepulchre garden besides those two and Jesus didn't write the gospel of John so Mary must have had a hand in it maybe she didn't write all of it but with the help of Philip who went with her to France it's quite possible that she wrote down what they remembered together so to speak and quite early on because although the gospel of John is supposed to be the latest he thinks it could have been the earliest okay that's interesting. Mm. Um, so when they talk about the raising of Lazarus, is that just a metaphor? Uh, kind yes. of. Uh, I, I know in the Templar Mysteries, I think Lynn Pickett says something about um, Mary and Jesus were practicing some, uh, I, you know, Osiris uh, resurrection mysteries. Um, no, it, no, I don't it, think that's did, true at all. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't but, think that's true. What raising, happened was that, He'd been condemned, Lazarus had been condemned to death by the leading, I suppose, the Sanhedrin, and to the burial, alive, so to speak. But he he wasn't dead, but when Mary sent word to Jesus saying, come quickly because Lazarus has been um, put to death, so to speak, and needs your help. And Jesus called him forth. He wasn't completely dead, and he came forth. But he hadn't been dead. He, he was on the, probably on the point of death. But he was very close. Lazarus was the disciple that Jesus loved best, so he would have you know, come in a hurry to help if he possibly could. But he wasn't resurrected now, uh, from the dead. It was rather similar to Jesus' resurrection. And and that brings up another thing. Lazarus' real name was Simus, uh, Simon Zelotes? Simon Zelotes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Apparently it was. I can't explain all the background of that, but he was really... Uh, um, working against Roman rule because Roman rule was so terribly oppressive at this time that a group of um, people in Jerusalem had formed uh, well not only in Jerusalem but had formed a group to counteract the um, horrors of the Roman 
um, rule there, and so they were zealotes, means zealot. So he was a group of belonged to the group of zealots who were working to destroy Roman rule. And as okay. because of that, he was very much at risk of death. Okay, so this resurrection um, was um, his his escape more than it was some sort of magical, mystical uh, ceremony or something. Yes, it's, I don't think a magical, mystical thing. He, I think he'd been condemned by the Jewish um, heads, so not by the Romans, but by the by the Jews. Um, to he'd done something wrong. I don't know what he'd done exactly, but Lawrence Gardner explains it. I can't remember it. And um, well, because it, of that, he, he was condemned to death by burial and so I, th- so I think part of what we're hearing here, too, is there were a lot of factions uh, with their own agendas, and including yes. the Jews. I mean, the Jews, yes. you know, uh, even though Jesus was a Jew, Jesus was at odds with a lot of the Jews in authority, it seems. Absolutely, he was. He was. Thorn- he, he, yeah, you're right. He was he was trying to um, get the Jewish people to not be under the authority so much of the people who were keeping them down, so the Jewish uh, priesthood who were keeping them down. He wanted them to be much more open. He wanted them to have relationships with the Gentiles and a much open, wider sort of consciousness. He was really probably okay. doing what we're trying to do now, which is raise the consciousness of humanity. Right, right. Well, we think about that story of him with the money changers in the temple. Uh, mm. You know that that you know that comes to mind if if that was really true. But that seems like uh, uh, you know that could have been a reflection of his differing viewpoints. Uh, you know, and not agreeing with the establishment, so to speak, the Jewish establishment. Yeah, and he ran very uh, close to the wind. He he got under their. You know, he was. They were really angry with him, and they were very eager to get rid of him, which may have been behind the whole crucifixion thing. Right. Uh, well, I, another thing I found interesting, Anne, was um, Herod Agrippa uh, seems to almost have been complicit in helping Mary get away and reestablish uh, herself in France. Did, did you, do you remember that part? Yes, I do, because Herod Agrippa I was assassinated by poisoning, and this poisoning was blamed on the Nazarenes and on Lazarus, or Simon Zelotes, and they were in great danger, and Mary was obviously part of that group. And Mary appealed to his son, Herod Agrippa II, who was only 17 at the time, and who'd been tutored by St. Paul. She appealed to him for sanctuary, and he gave her permission to settle in the area of France, which was owned by his family, which was north of Marseille. Uh, so that's how she got permission to to go there and have sanctuary in that part of France. And that's kind of a surprise, isn't it? Because um, you know, here's the you know Herod is part of the establishment. They killed Jesus, uh, but yet it's Herod that uh, the son that's helping Mary escape. I mean, it's really uh, would be, make a great uh, TV movie mystery. <laughs> it would. It would make a fantastic movie. I don't know whether the first Herod Agrippa was the same one who was alive at the time of the crucifixion, because this is uh, 11 years later. So I don't know that. I haven't checked that fact. But anyway, it was the young Herod Agrippa who gave her permission to go, and that because a whole lot of them went, really taking sanctuary. They had to get out of um, Palestine. Right, right. Um, So do we... Mm -hmm. 
so do we know if Mary and Jesus ever get back together or I mean uh you you talk about her death but we don't have anything about his actual death um I mean do we think he just died in obscurity somewhere well, we don't know. There is one legend that he was buried in Kashmir, and I've actually been to that tomb myself many years ago. But there are other um, rumors going around that he actually did go back to France and was possibly buried there, not with Mary, but um, around the area of Rennes Chateau, because I've got friends who live there and who will tell me these tidbits from time to time. Also, right. the fact that um, Cla- uh, Pontius Pilate's wife, Claudia, was a great friend of Mary Magdalene, and that Claudia and Pontius Pilate were sent sort of into retirement in that part of France where uh, the priest you mentioned lived. That's called uh, Rennes, Rennes-le-Chateau. And right. Narbonne, which was a part, part then, and uh, Claudia and Pontius Pilate had a house there. So there were all these connections going on. We have to look at it from a modern point of view in a way. They all knew each other. And possibly Claudia and Pontius Pilate would have helped Mary to get sorted when she got to France, although it's a slightly different part of France. But there's so many legends going around in that part of France that she lived there. And um, as I say now, there are legends that Jesus went back there and lived with her too. So that's an unknown, and we can't prove it. It's just a a legend or a a rumor. But it's all very fascinating, and it's all coming up now, which means that there's an absolute fascination with Mary Magdalene and the fact of her marriage and the fact that she lived in France and was absolutely adored by the people of Provence and was buried at the foot of a famous mountain there called the Sainte Baume. And that many, many popes and kings actually visited her tomb there. It was well known as a place of pilgrimage. So there's no doubt that she was buried there. And that Lazarus was too, and also James the Just, who was unfortunately assassinated in England, but he asked if his remains could be sent back to to be joined with those of Mary and Lazarus in that same place. It's very moving, really. So three people have their remains buried in that that chapel, which has become a basilica now. And uh, and Lazarus, or uh, and we know he, he was also Simon Zealot. Um, he would became the Bishop of Marseille. Wow! Yes, yeah, he became the Bishop of Marseille and was very well known. And that's in the rec- records of the um, library in Lyon, in the town of Lyon in France. So there's proof of that. And also um, Martha was very well known and is buried in a town called Tarascon. Wow! So they were highly uh, I mean, highly respected. And, and, you know, you think about, uh, I mean, look, you know, we are living in a time of uh, all sorts of alternative histories are coming to the forefront. You know, it, I, I think it's incredibly exciting, the transparency that suddenly um, is being thrust upon us. Now, it may scare mm. some people, you know, because it rocks their world and maybe with the beliefs that they grew up with or whatever. Um, but I find this fascinating. But at the same time, Anne, I have to tell you, what an injustice. You know, it it so irks me. It makes me so angry to think that all of this was kept from us. Um, I, I mean, I know as a goddess advocate, uh, I know I, I mean, I grew up a Catholic, and I, you know, and sometimes I kid and say I'm a, I'm a recovering Catholic, uh, and I was very angry at the church, you know, when I first learned of 
you know, the role they played in rewriting history and the injustice of women and, you know, all of the, that ugliness that, that is really there uh, in the past and in the present. Um, but imagine you're Mary Magdalene, you know, and, and, and you've gotten this bum rap and, and your story um, was so distorted and, and you're marginalized and, and, you're, uh, and, and you're called a whore when really yeah. you were Jesus' wife and, and the mother yeah. of his children and, and, and he intended you to lead his church. I mean, what an incredible, incredible Yeah, what an injustice. incredible turnaround. It's outrageous. But I, think, I have a feeling that Mary Madeline has been sort of pushing me to do this because it's been quite difficult work at my age. I'm 85 now to take this on. Um, but I, I can't turn it into a book because Lawrence Gardner has done it so well. There's no need for me to do that. But I would point everyone to his books and um, just get clued up as, as to what's happened and why it right. happened. And it was just inconceivable to the men of that time that women could have any value at all. This was the problem, other than being um, the mothers of, of their children. But not, and that's another reason why the church instituted the, the rule of celibacy, because they wanted to eliminate the, any influence of women on the church. That was the right, reason behind right. the priests having to be celibate. Right. Well, and, and so uh, when the, just when the sort pope, of... Go ahead. When, when the Pope said that um, we can't have women priests because Jesus didn't have any women um, disciples, he was just talking rubbish. Well, and, and I wonder what you think of this new Pope, Anne. Do you think there's much hope that he will be, uh, you know, he'll break, break ranks and uh, reveal any of this? Or no, maybe not he won't do that. But he, he has gone very far with that wonderful encyclical he put out last May, I think it was, um, about nature and our responsibility towards nature. He did a wonderful job in that encyclical. But I don't think he could possibly go. There's a huge faction in the church which is even against him uh, as far as he's gone, you know. So yeah. I don't think he'd get anywhere. They would they would assassinate him rather than have any change of that nature. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess maybe some people would call me a purist, but if I had if I was privy to this kind of information, um, I don't think I could stay loyal to the institution that was perpetuating the lies. You know. Well, he may not know um, about it. He certainly he hasn't read Lawrence Gardner, so he may not know, and he may not know what's in the archives because nobody's going to sort of tell him what's in the archives from within the church. It's only people we should who've send him a copy of Lawrence. We should send him a copy of Lawrence's book. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, he won't read it. He'll um, just put it in the bin. <laughs> right, right. Well, but, um, this will you come know, out. I, I, this will come out. It's coming out now through people like me and through Lawrence Gardner and, and through you. So it will come out. And it, it, it's an outrageous calumny, as I said, on Mary Magdalene. And I've been very, very angry following all this up and putting it together for you. You know, feeling what what a wrong was done to her and also to all women from her, from yes. her descent. Yes. And um, I, and I know we're getting toward the end here, but let, let's just sort of um, bring it full circle to the Black Madonnas. Um, yes. You, uh, in the material you sent me, you, you sort of wrap up with uh, the significance of, of the Black Madonnas. Did you want to speak to that a little bit? Yes, I did. What's so interesting is the first 
veneration of the Black Madonna started in the longer dock, that's near where Mary lived, in, in A.D. 44, the same year she arrived. And by the 16th century, there were 400 of these statues in France. And what I think, the Black Madonna in all these churches in France, I think, were really to signify the presence or the teaching of Mary Magdalene in every, in every cathedral that was built. And I also suspect, you know, that they were called Notre Dame, all of these churches. I suspect that Notre Dame was not only the Virgin, Jesus' mother, but also was Mary Magdalene. So there were two Notre Dames in all these, and the Templars knew this. They couldn't have said they were erecting the churches to Mary Magdalene, but they could have said Notre Dame covered Mary Magdalene, if you see what I mean. Yes, yes. And she was also um, associated with the wisdom of Sophia um, right the way through, and that was also the Black Madonna, who the mystery of of wisdom was the dark mystery, so to speak, of wisdom. Yeah. And is there anything we should say about the Benedictines and the Dominicans? I mean, if they kept, I mean, uh, on the one hand, we're, you know, Lawrence is saying they kept this information alive. But on the other hand, um, I, were they vocal about it at all? I mean, or were, no, or no, they, they just had to keep it quiet. Because they would have had, what happened was that, um, what's his name? Bernard of Clairvaux, St. Bernard of Clairvaux, in the 12th century, started the Order of the Cistercians, and at the same time started the Order of the Knights Templar. So he was tremendously instrumental in doing that. But before that, the Benedictines, the earliest uh, monk, um, what's monkish order? It's <laughs> not the right word. Um, the Benedictines were the first to record the old stories of Mary Magdalene. And the Dominicans later on, the Dominicans unfortunately became the main instruments of the in Inquisition after the 13th century, so they're not in my good book. But apparently um, they still had these records which they kept in the churches of Mary Magdalene. So they, both of these, or all three of these orders of monks kept alive the uh, true stories of Mary Magdalene and also the marriage with Jesus. And that's what Lawrence Gardner says, and he's gone into the records. And um, so, so, um, and, and in the end, you say she was finally canonized in 1969. I don't think I knew that. So they canonized Mary Magdalene a saint. Yes, they did. They made her and gave her a saint's day, and it, it must have been Pope um, John Paul II who did that. I can't remember my dates of popes, but it was um, wow. quite fairly recently. Okay, and uh, and. I, I wonder how many people know that. I mean, I'm not saying because I didn't know it, it. You know, a lot of people didn't know it. But, you know, everybody sure knows about the whore, uh, you know, idea. Yeah. But uh, it, but do they know she ends, ends up being canonized a saint? Uh, wow, not, I, I doubt I, that I'm was not on absolutely, the... I'm not sure about that, Karen. It could have been that she had a feast day. So I'm, I wouldn't, I'd like somebody to check that up on Google or something because I'm not sure. But I would say, sure. that, you mentioned at the beginning that Greg, it was Gregory the Great in 591, not 59 AD, but 591 um, AD, who st set out the thing that she was a whore and a sinner. Right, so in right, right. In the 6th century. Okay. And there was there was a bishop uh, that was mentioned, uh, Spongy or something, uh, Bishop Spong, um, Sites yes, that Bishop the record Spong, was wonderful things um, 
who's very well known. He's written a lot about Christianity, wonderful things. And he said, um, where is it now? If I can find that page. Um, I have uh, one of his quotes here. You say, he writes, The record was suppressed but not annihilated by the Christian church, yet so real was this relationship that hints of it are scattered all over the Gospels. That's right, yes. Well, he knows what he's talking about. He really does, Bishop Spong. So, um, so much I guess about to... Christianity. So to wrap this up, Anne, um, is there anything um, I've missed that you think is important to uh, bring to the fore about this? No, I think that I'd, I'd like to just bring forward the Black Madonna as being the symbol of this secret wisdom teaching that was carried by Mary Magdalene to France and had to go underground after the vicious 4th century repression of the Gnostics. Uh, I think that's very important, people who like the Black Madonna and visit the places in France, to remember that, that they're commemorating Mary Magdalene and her teaching. Yeah. Um, I think and we've covered this, pretty and, well everything that I sent you. Yeah, I, I think so, too. Um, uh, and you, well, and you say the Black Madonna veneration started from a town called uh, Ferriers in the Fer Languedoc. Ferrier. I don't exactly know where it is, but it's in the Languedoc part of France, which is the same area as the Cathars came from or established themselves yeah. in. And you said by the 16th century there were 400 of these statues yeah. in France, and yeah. Mary Magdalene was associated with uh, the royal bride of the Song of Solomon. Um, right. And beyond that, with the sacred marriage of Haragamas, descended from Sumer, and the sacred marriage of Inanna and Dumuzi. Um, right. So I so I guess we should uh, refer folks to Lawrence Gardner, and it's Lawrence with a U, L A U R E N C E Gardner. Uh, he's got the uh, the Magdalen legacy, the Grail enigma. Um, uh, any, he, he's got a lot of great books out there. Yeah, and the Bloodline of the Holy Grail was the first one of this series. He wrote three in this series on, on this whole subject we've been covering today. There's just one other thing in the Revelation, the book of Revelation. St. John is referring to Mary Magdalene when he says that the woman with the crown of stars fled with her child to preserve the remnant of her seed, which had the testimony of Jesus Christ. She was fleeing the seven-headed dragon of Roman rule. So that the dragon in the in the book of Revelation was Roman rule. I see. Okay. And you know, there's something else. I think it. I think it's in Revelation about the uh, the woman. Um, oh, the woman wrapped in the sun, or something like that. Um, Clothed with that, the sun uh, and crowned with uh, the seven, is, with the stars. Do yeah, you? The crown do, of stars. Who, do you think but, that refers to Mary Magdalene or the well, feminine he, he principle? Does. He does definitely. Lawrence does. It, it could require also to our own time because we're faced with the dragon again, really, and it could refer to the feminine principle today, which is um, threatened really again by the old patriarchal beliefs and and power, power-driven right. um, behavior. Right, exactly. This is the big challenge exactly. today. It's whether we choose love or power. That's the choice. 
Yeah, yeah, and and I think that that's becoming very obvious. Um, and I, I'm actually hopeful, Anne. I, uh, in spite of how ugly it looks out there, I think more people are awake and aware uh, than mm-hmm. ever before. And um, I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to push this in a good direction, and you know, the feminine will have her rebirth. Yes, I am too. I think it is strengthening all the time. Which is good. And um, also, the the more difficulty and evil there is in the world, the more people wake up. Yes, yes, yes. You know, the more uncomfortable people become, you know, it forces them to get off their couch and stop looking mm. at their phone and maybe actually get out there and do some form of something, you know. Um, because I, I'm I'm just uh, really motivated and inspired by all the activism going on uh, all around the world, really. You know, and you think about you know the corporate media doesn't even cover it. So no. imagine the stuff that's 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 happening, and we don't yeah. even get to see it every day. And also, um, what's well, oh, is all based on service, and service was the true role of the carriers of the Grail or the bearers of the Grail. It was service of humanity, service of, of nature, service of life in any form. And that's coming back very strongly, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. You know, it's it's becoming about the, you know, the common good once again. You know, it's about our quality of life. Uh, it's, uh, you know, I, I think people are tired of being exploited and oppressed and uh you know they they they've just had enough of it and you know they realize in the feminine um you know that's always sort of been the the bastion of uh the teachings of you know sanctuary solutions you know the mm-hmm. um you know uh, you know sort of the we and the us as opposed to the i and the me you know mm-hmm. um well, it's been lovely well, talking and, to you Karen uh, Yes, thank you so very much. And I want to mention your book again, uh, The Dream of the Cosmos, A Quest for the Soul, a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, and thank you again for your support uh, in the anthology, uh, Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. I really appreciate your uh, participation uh, in that. And um, do you want to uh, mention your website? Because you said there are some things there that listeners yes, might want to go. Yes, there's a lot on my website that- it's www.annbearing.com. Okay, wonderful. Well, Anne, thank you so much for your time. I know we went a little bit long, but I think we covered it all. Um, well, I so did. appreciate thank you. thank you so yeah. very much, and, okay, and good thank night. Okay, thank Bye. Bye-bye. Well, dear listeners, um, that about... Uh, covers it for the interview uh, with uh, Legacy of Mary Magdalene with Ann Baring. Uh, but before I uh, uh, sign off, uh, I have a word uh, for you from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth have a rock with you. And I came out of it. This, this is my mother's land. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, 
Well, you've been listening to the trailer for Dancing with Gaia, Joe Carson's feature-length documentary film, in it she interviews 15 visionaries and teachers about earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the return of the goddesses Gaia. Joe traveled to ancient sacred sites all over Europe and the Mediterranean to shoot the film. And these spiritual sites from northern Scotland to central Turkey profoundly affected the origins of Western culture. If you've always wanted to see them yourself but haven't, this is an opportunity to experience some of the best ones and get their story. The DVD comes packaged with a 45-page color mini-book, which goes even deeper into the material. You can buy the DVD and booklet for only $20 at DancingWithGaia.com. And while I'm talking about books uh, or films uh, that you should uh, have on your bookshelf, I'd like to suggest uh, my new anthology that just came out in December, which uh, I mentioned uh, Ann Baring is a contributor to. It's called Goddess 2.0, Advancing a New Path Forward. And it really is about goddess spirituality all grown up. It goes beyond uh, the basics. It talks about how goddess, uh, the feminine as deity, archetype, and ideal, uh, offers solutions and sanctuary to change the world, uh, to make the world a better place, um, a world uh, where we all uh, have a better quality of life. And, uh, you know, many of us talked about... um, uh, you know, giving patriarchy the boot, but, uh, you know, we didn't talk a lot about what is going to replace it, how are we going to replace it, and I think um, Goddess 2.0 gives us some idea on what we need to manifest uh, to um, uh, replace this, uh, these patriarchal values that have uh, created so much suffering in the world. Uh, you can find that by going to my website, karentate.com. That's K-A-R-E-N-T-A-T-E.com. And if you're in the Southern California area, we're having a big book launch party uh, this Saturday night at the Goddess Temple of Orange County, which is also the Museum of Woman. Um, you, everyone is invited. It's a free party. Uh, there's going to be ritual and revelry, raffle. Uh, silent auction, presentations, uh, just a lot of fun. And uh, we are going to be talking about this very subject, uh, how the sacred feminine uh, offers us solutions and sanctuary uh, for uh, a new world. Uh, so next week, next Wednesday, um, I will be back here uh, at the regular time of uh, uh, 6 p.m. Pacific, but you can always catch the show from the archives. And next Wednesday, I will have with me Brianna Borton. She's the co-author of The Well Life, and our show topic is Finding Life's Sweet Spot, a Miss the chaos. I think something that will benefit uh, everyone considering the challenges uh, that, uh, you know, uh, some of us are experiencing out there in the world. So uh, thank you very much uh, for tuning in. Uh, Please share uh, the link for Voices of the Sacred Feminine 
uh, around social media and with your friends. Uh, if you're new to the show, uh, the sh- we have been on the air here for 10 years. There is an incredible uh, treasure trove of archives there at your disposal. And uh, please do go to my website, karentate.com. Uh, there's lots of free stuff there. Uh, and if you would, go to uh, the Goddess Store page at karentate.com. Check out my books. Uh, they have lots of uh, sales there. I have some book bundles. Uh, There's goddess greeting cards. There's free downloadable meditations. And, um, you know, in keeping with our motto, what you support and nourish thrives and what you neglect withers, uh, if this show has been meaningful to you, uh, if it offers you something in this world, uh, please support it. Uh, and you can do that by using the PayPal button on my Goddess Store page. Uh, go all the way down to the very, very, very bottom. Uh, you can make a donation of any amount, and it is much appreciated. So that about does it uh, for me this morning. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thanks to Ann Baring uh, for calling in with this wonderful uh, information about uh, Mary Magdalene. I know it was more comprehensive than any um, you know I have read to date, and we thank Lawrence Gardner for his meticulous research and for Ann Baring uh, keeping his work out there alive because it is very important for us to understand uh, what once was uh, and what can be again and who the players are that uh, have distorted uh, the important message of uh, equality uh, and, and the sacred. So... Uh, that about does it for me. Uh, I am out here. And uh, I'm just going to close uh, the show tonight with uh, a little bit of music from uh, Reclaiming uh, their Campfire Chants. Uh, and this is one of my favorites uh, called uh, Sweet Water. And uh, it's kind of a, a chant of activism. So uh, enjoy it, dear listeners. Have a great week. And uh, I'll be back with you next Wednesday.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.